You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Many businesses are taking steps to support their workers during protests against police brutality after the death of George Floyd. But on the flip side, workers have few legal protections if an employer decides to fire them for protesting outside of work. Joining me is Merrick Rosane, a professor at the City University of New York School of Law. In general, what should employers be doing for workers at these times of social unrest, even if the workers are at home? Well, first of all, all employers must recognize the tremendous trauma with the convergence of the COVID crisis and I would say the structural racism crisis that white America has finally learned and woken up to. Um, I'm a white person, so I'm, I'm saying that from my own perspective also, although I have been studying this field for many decades. But I think it's really important that employers as corporate citizens have to recognize what is going on in this tremendous inflection point in history and recognize that their own employees are being impacted by this trauma, particularly their employees of color. And so should they be reaching out to them? Should they be offering programs? You know, what should they do to send a signal or to help? Yes. First of all, they should be reaching out, um, and uh, the employers and companies should be training their managers who are interacting with their line employees and say, you must really reach out to them and don't just say, how are you doing? But specifically ask, how are you feeling? Is the COVID crisis impacting you right now? Is all this demonstrations in the streets and all the news impacting you right now? How can I help you? Do you need some type of accommodation? That's one thing. Number two, I think that companies, many companies have employee assistance plans that allow for an employee to reach out to a counselor to get counseling. But I think all companies really have to look at their programs. Are they sufficient? Are they really addressing the huge trauma, the psychological trauma that people are feeling? And we now know that the trauma is not just current, but it is intergenerational, particularly for communities of color and more specifically for the African-American community, because we're now beginning to understand that go back 400 years from the middle passage of bringing enslaved people to this country, to the slavery period, to the Jim Crow period, uh, to the period where the United States government and state governments were providing benefits primarily to the white communities and discriminating against communities of color. So today we recognize that there is a tremendous disparity in wealth and in ownership, and it has uh, created a tremendous amount of trauma in people of color. So now suppose someone says, you know, it's too much for me, or I have to take care of my family. Can they get paid leave? paid medical leave or paid leave of any kind? Well, of course, you know, in terms of what statutory and legal programs are set up, there are some states where there is paid leave 
uh, but the paid leave is generally to take care of a family member or to take care of yourself. But, but that's limited to a number, just a handful of states. There is no national program. What I'm advising um, employers now is to say, as a corporate citizen, this is a point in history where you have to really say, okay, does this very important employee need some additional help? And can we provide paid leave? And so I think companies really should look inward and say, yes, this is very important to do at this point and develop these programs. Companies won't be getting any assistance from the state, or is it just dependent on your own insurance program? Well, a number of states, and you're probably familiar with it, during the COVID period now, have said, okay, if you have a paid leave program for some employees but not other employees, you must give it to everybody. But generally, uh, what this has really shown is that we really do need a paid leave program for all groups of workers, similar to what most other industrialized countries, certainly the European nations, but also a number of Asian countries also have been providing to their employees and to their citizens. And so the COVID crisis has really put forward in in front of our eyes all the inequities where the so-called essential workers that we are now celebrating that they're helping those of us who have the privilege like myself to be able to work at home on computers and and to continue getting my pay and and I have paid sick leave through through my employer uh, we are recognizing that many of the essential workers the lower wage workers uh, and mostly people of color many immigrants do not have these benefits and so it's the time for us to reexamine moving forward whether we want a society that is really living up to what the the Constitution puts forward as equality for all. Coming up next, can an employer fire you for engaging in protests? I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. I've been talking to Professor Merrick Rosane of the City University of New York School of Law about steps businesses are taking to support their workers during this time. How far behind other countries as far as workers' rights in this area is the U.S.? We are way behind uh, other countries. And if we just examine, you know, the countries that we have interacted with, that we trade with more, the European Union uh, countries, and I'm not just talking about the Scandinavian countries. Many people will say, well, of course, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, they're different. They, they've had a uh, kind of social democracy. Um, but if we look at Germany, if we look at Spain, if we look at Italy, um, all these countries have paid leave programs. They, they differ somewhat, um, but they, uh, they have many programs that benefit all of their employees much more than we do. And of course, if you look at the health statistics, we have been even before the COVID crisis, we have been way behind between in terms of infant mortality rates, maternal mortality rates during pregnancy and childbirth. We are way behind. So now let's turn to another concern in this area, and that is, so a lot of people are protesting. Can you be fired if your employer finds out you've been protesting peacefully and they don't like the look of it? There is no federal protection to people 
who are protesting legally, except if you are a public employee, because you have limited constitutional rights. But primarily, the Constitution does not apply to private sector employees. There are a few states that have statutes that prohibit employers from disciplining workers for outside activity, lawful outside activity. Um, California, New York, New Jersey, a few states, um, probably a few more. Uh, but this is something that I think that employers should look at very carefully and recognize that this is, once again, an inflection point in history where people are going out and demanding really structural changes, not only at the workplace, but throughout society. And I think that it would be um, beneficial to companies to recognize that they should participate in trying to make these structural reforms so that their employees can be fully contributing employees and that we could all be part of a society that is moving to heal as opposed to, to the tremendous divisions that we have. So is there a difference if an employee, let's say, is arrested during a protest? Does that make a difference even in those states that have laws about this? Well, you know, uh, generally those states, as we say, we were talking about lawful activity, um, but we have to be very careful about uh, examining the arrest right now. First of all, there's a legal process that has to go through. And as we know that there have been many instances of um, unlawful activity by the law enforcement agencies, uh, for instance, an, an example, in New York City, in the Bronx uh, last week, there was a peaceful demonstration and there were legal observers, lawyers and law students who uh, were clearly identified and the mayor's order to the law enforcement agency, the NYPD, was these legal observers have a right to be looking at what's going on. Ten of them were arrested. That's an unlawful arrest. But until the legal process goes on, and some of those lawyers might be working for different companies, and they certainly should not be uh, disciplined uh, for that type of activity. There was an incident in Central Park that got a lot of publicity where a woman called police after an African-American man asked her to put her dog on a leash, which is required in New York. She was fired. Is that kind of firing permissible? Can she appeal that in any way? It is permissible. What, what she actually did might not be unlawful, although I noticed that the state legislature, the New York state legislature, yesterday passed some legislation which would cause that type of activity be the lawful in the, in the future if you call 911 and report something that is not true, that, that would be a violation of criminal law. It's not so clear that that was a violation, but there might have been a violation. But yes, an employer could discipline and, and discharge that employee. That particular employer was concerned about their reputational harm with the publicity uh, with this woman kind of being attached to them because her job and, and her employer were out there in the, in the media. So I just want to sum this up. So basically, workers who don't have contracts can be fired at will. So if an employer sees that you're involved in protests, let's say, an employer can basically fire that worker. 
That is correct, except in, in those um, you know few states where there is state statute. Um, however, I would think that it would behoove employers at this moment a profound change in, in American history uh, to look at that very carefully and say, well, maybe I actually will support the peaceful protest. A number of companies have actually indicated that they're going to make be making contributions to such organizations as the, as the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who are providing legal assistance to the protesters and also providing uh, assistance to, to Congress and state legislatures in, in terms of trying to reform various laws, particularly around law enforcement issues. I think it might be curious to some workers that what they do in their private time, that an employer has anything to say about what they do in their private time. Absolutely. Uh, You know, most employees believe that they have certain First Amendment rights and that what they do outside of work, they can do as long as it's lawful. However, the Constitution does not apply to private sector employees. And um, the employer, as you mentioned earlier, most employees, 99% of our employees, well, not 90% unionized employees, are, have certain protections. And some public employees have certain protections. But for the private sector employees who do not have contracts, and the only people who really have contracts of employment are high-level management and executives. So all employees are employees at will, which means that an employer can fire that employee for any reason whatsoever except an unlawful reason. It could be a bad reason, a stupid reason, an irrational reason, but unless it's unlawful by a law, there is no protection for that employee. Thanks, Rick. That's Merrick Rosane of the City University of New York School of Law. It turned some legal heads when two lawyers known for policing workplace discrimination during the Obama administration joined Morgan Lewis, a huge law firm that often defends companies accused of violating workers' rights. Bloomberg Law reporter Chris Offer talked to former Equal Employment Opportunity Commission member Hy Fellbloom and her chief of staff, Sharon Masling, about leaving the plaintiff's side of the labor and employment bar for their new roles as management side lawyers. And he joins me now. So, Chris, start by telling us about their careers up to this point. So these are a pair of civil rights attorneys who have dedicated uh, the last several decades of their career to workplace advocacy, largely on the worker side, um, focusing in particular on issues like disability rights, uh, sex discrimination, and harassment in the workplace. Um, a pair of folks who are steeped in the Democratic side of the aisle when it comes to Capitol Hill. Uh, Feldblum had started um, at the ACLU as a lawyer working on legislative issues for their HIV AIDS project, went into academia and started a disability rights clinic. Uh, was heavily involved in efforts on Capitol Hill to pass legislation uh, enacting gay rights, um, and then was tapped by former President Obama for a uh, a seat on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where she served for two um, terms uh, and was actually appointed for a third term by President Trump because the EEOC has designated Democrat seats. So she was appointed by Trump to fill um, one of the Democrat seats there. Uh, That appointment, that nomination was scuttled 
as a result of some um, misgivings by a small group of Republicans led by Senators uh, Mike Lee and Marco Rubio. Uh, Feldblum, of course, was the EESC's first openly gay member um, and, again, was a champion for uh, some of the LGBT rights issues. Um, and, and a small group of Republicans um, were concerned, they said, about whether or not she could balance uh, that advocacy with respect for employers' religious rights. Um, Masling, um, who often is considered a uh, sort of a sidekick for Feldblum, uh, is no slouch in her own right. These are, uh, you know, Harvard NYU trained lawyer um, who worked on Capitol Hill on the Democratic side of the aisle and worked in the uh, Justice Department Civil Rights Division working on disability rights issues. Um, before joining the EESC and serving as Feldblum's chief of staff. Um, and so once um, Feldblum's uh, nomination was scuttled last year, uh had to go looking for work. And um, what was surprising to some folks um, that have worked with them or know them was where they wound up going. Um, I guess it was late last year they announced that they were uh, jumping ship and joining Morgan Lewis, which is one of these just uh, huge mega law firms. Morgan Lewis is known more as a defense firm. It's defended companies and even President Trump and his companies. So tell us a little bit about Morgan Lewis and what it stands for. So this is a huge global law firm um, that gets a large share of its income from um, advising uh, a wide range of companies in employment matters and also defending them in court when they're accused of all, all sorts of things from uh, labor violations and union busting to employment discrimination and harassment. Uh, most recently, they've been um, defending Amazon and some of the notable litigation going on over there with respect to uh, the company's treatment of workers and safety issues at uh, Amazon's facilities. Um, and so the firm also uh, has been in the news recently because on the tax side, their, their uh, tax practice represents President Trump and also the Trump Organization in a wide range of the tax-related issues uh, stemming from uh, not only uh, President Trump's um, refusal to um, release his uh, tax, his, his personal uh, income tax returns, but also some tax issues uh, related to the Trump Organization at large. You spoke to a Chicago lawyer who was surprised by Feldblum's career move, as I expect many other lawyers are as well. What did she say? Yeah, Brenda Faith actually had, had done the, uh, the opposite switch. Um, she had defended um, large law firms, that, I'm sorry, law, large employers at Safar Shaw uh, before flipping um, to the plaintiff side to represent workers in discrimination and related cases. And she and other attorneys that I spoke to on both sides of the political spectrum and on both sides of the uh, labor management bar expressed some surprise um, just based on their experience having worked with Feldblum and Massling and also being familiar with the body of work and their backgrounds and the issues they had focused on, uh, that these two lawyers would jump ship and, and quote, uh, switch sides um, to a management firm known for defending companies accused of violations. Stay right there, Chris. We're going to continue this conversation. And coming up next on Bloomberg Law, how the coronavirus pandemic disrupted the plans of Fellbloom and Massling at their new firm. And later, 
why the Trump administration keeps losing in court by ignoring climate change. And remember, you can get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I've been talking to Bloomberg Law reporter Chris Opfer about two Obama civil rights lawyers switching sides. Chris, often we hear about lawyers who work their entire careers in government and at regulatory agencies, and then they make the switch to big law firms where they can command a lot of money because of their prior connections and prior experience. So is this really that surprising? So when I spoke to Phil Bloom and Massing, they certainly recognized that this would be a pay bump for them. And it is not out of the ordinary, generally speaking, for officials to leave government service and to command um, a high price tag often in uh, these large corporate law firms. We've seen a lot of that out of the Obama administration since President Obama left office. But there is a, in the labor and employment space, it, it is uh, an oddity. Um, our analysis showed that she's Feldblum, that is, is the first Democratic commissioner to jump sides uh, after leaving the EEOC in uh, two decades. Um, and what Feldblum and Massling said is that um, in addition to the pay bump, uh, this is a situation that allows them to help companies do the right thing, to get in on the ground floor, to advise them on the front end rather than defending them in court uh, when they're facing a lawsuit. And they're focusing in particular on what they call workplace culture, um, which is an issue uh, that they spend a lot of time on at the EEOC, particularly in the harassment realm uh, following the Harvey Weinstein uh, case. Um, Both of them looking at this idea that workplaces can um, enhance their culture and sort of combat some of the latent harassment and discrimination that may go on um, by actively managing that culture. I imagine that they'll get a lot of clients who see them as sources of information about how the other side works. Absolutely. If nothing else, you could see a client, um, a, a company getting a letter from the EESC starting to ask questions about a particular case or allegation, um, wanting to speak to people who are fresh off of uh, working over there and have a, a a really uh, sort of insider view as to how the agency works, how they handle these cases, um, and how they prosecute them. In addition to that, um, again, it's it's sort of this idea that um, if you put in the time and effort and and make the uh, commitment to work with some of these attorneys to address some of these issues and nip them in the bud, it may very well save you on the back end by keeping you out of court or at least limiting uh, your liability on the back end. So when did they, they join Morgan Lewis? Uh, it was right at the tail end of last year. So I want to say I think the announcement came out in December of 2019. So then how has the pandemic affected their work? Right. So, um, you know, the Massling and Feldblum had planned to really focus on this advisory role uh, particularly with respect to uh, discrimination and harassment and addressing workplace culture in that space. Um, but they told me they found themselves shifting, uh, like pretty much everyone else uh, who practices labor and employment law, um, to tackling a wide range of questions, 
posed by the coronavirus uh, because both of them have a background and, and expertise in disability discrimination in particular. Uh, they've been called on to um, tackle a wide range of questions related to um, testing employees for coronavirus, potentially testing employees for antibodies uh, for the coronavirus, and a wide range of other issues related to the virus uh, as companies start to think about opening their doors and potentially bringing uh, workers back to the job. And Phil Bloom had a lot to do with the Americans with Disabilities Act. She did, yes. And I, for one, um, would have guessed that Congress uh, 30 years ago when they passed the Americans with Disabilities Act had no idea that any sort of pandemic, the likes of uh, coronavirus, would be striking us now here three decades later. But what Feldblum and Maslin said um, was that actually it, it strikes a very similar chord to a lot of the discussions that they had had regarding the HIV-AIDS uh, pandemic at the time, the epidemic, um, which was really spiking. We're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, and it was interesting what Feldblum, who was working as an ACLU lawyer at the time and was uh, up on Capitol Hill advising them particularly about HIV AIDS issues, said um, is that some of the language that's being used now to address the coronavirus uh, is language that was written into the act to address concerns from lawmakers regarding HIV AIDS. In your story, you discuss the question that employers are facing about whether an employee poses a direct threat. Tell us about that. That's right. It's a complicated analysis. The direct threat um, analysis comes into play with employees who uh, do not have the virus but may have some underlying medical condition that makes them particularly susceptible um, to, you know, a, a really bad bout of the virus or, or maybe even death if they contract the virus. And the question is, what can employees do? In, uh, I'm sorry, what can employers do in those situations in regards to uh, bringing those employees back into the workplace, knowing that they may be uh, particularly susceptible? And so what was written into the ADA uh, to deal with the HIV AIDS virus was this direct threat language. And what it says is that uh, an employer making those kinds of decisions has to look at every employee individually, has to look at what sort of reasonable accommodations can be made um, to protect that employee on the job. Um, and then based on those reasonable accommodations, whether or not the employee would still constitute, quote, a direct threat either to the employee themselves or to their coworkers. And if the answer is yes, there is a direct threat there, then the company can say, we're not going to bring you back to the job right now. But they have to go through that whole, uh, you know, sort of complex legal analysis before making that decision. So finally, Chris, did either of them tell you about any backlash they may have gotten from fellow lawyers about going to the other side? Not a lot. I, they acknowledge maybe a couple of eyebrows raised here and there at cocktail parties and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, the labor and employment bar is a, a fairly narrow universe. And, uh, you know, these people like to or try their best to play well together, even when they're on opposing sides in the courtroom um, or at the negotiating table. So not a ton of that, particularly knowing, you know, who knows down the road. In a future Democratic administration, you could see both uh, Feldblum and Maslin back in some sort of leadership role, whether that's at the EEOC or elsewhere. 
Thanks, Chris. That's Chris Opfer. He's the Bloomberg Law team leader for the business of law. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, why the Trump administration keeps losing in court by ignoring climate change. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 